Nathan, you know what death of the author is, right? I'm intimately familiar. Okay. No, I don't mean I don't mean murder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about this time on the Design Games Podcast? This time we are talking about turning your design into the drafts and notes that you'll write for yourself and for early playtest. Will, I'm glad I have you here for this episode because this is actually my least favorite part of game design, and that is writing down rules and actually putting words together into a readable form. Thankfully, I feel like uh, you you are more of an expert in this arena than I, and so perhaps you can shed some light on this this process of uh, that is both required for our form for the most part. There's some outlying ways to produce game instructions that are not text based, but they're pretty fringy still. I think to support your point, I think even the methods of game delivery that are not that do not include text in the end product demanded or required a text at some point to produce the thing that did not have text. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely, I think you're right, it's absolutely essential to the process. Unless you're making a game completely solo, which is not impossible, that is delivered completely without text. Even still, I suspect those documents exist. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a a thought experiment of like, if you do an unscripted video where you're verbally communicating how to play a game or something like that even then i think counts you're just recording and rec- and, and publishing the first draft is all yeah okay. so without getting into the weeds of like right, what right. is writing i think most of us generally are going to be either writing in a notebook or typing into a word processor or some method of uh transcribing the rules of the game and processes and structures and all the other material needed mm-hmm. into a form that you can have as a reference for yourself and then hand off to someone else. Right. A couple of the big verbs that we that we use that we get conflated that are useful to parse. Like writing can, it contains a lot of things. And so when we say it, like it is often transcribing the rules from a notebook or from your head or from your play experience or whatever it is. But it's also communication of those rules, which can change what you would write and how you would say it. Who you're talking to, especially in terms of their familiarity, not necessarily with games as much as with this game, changes a lot, I think, of how you would say a thing. Mm-hmm how you would communicate an idea, how you would express it. And when we consider that writing is not a form of expression, it is several forms of expression. If it is one form, there are many means and approaches and such within it. Mm-hmm. The point being that there are two, I think, fundamental things that are important to understand that are also often barriers to entry to writing that first draft. The first one is the first draft of everything is shit. And that's not actually true because the first draft is still a whole object taller than the th- than it not being there, mm-hmm. right? So it's not actually shit necessarily. It's a, it first draft is super valuable, but compared to your goal line, generally. yeah, o- almost always, right. right? My experience is that if you find that the first draft is not shit, if you find that it is mm-hmm. good, then what you should either be doing is reevaluating your goal line, which is to say, well, not bringing it down to the first draft, which is sometimes a ten- a tendency I think for writer shy, writing shy game designers. They say, mm-hmm. well, this this is about right. So the notion of well, so I, if I bump up this draft by ten percent and bring the goal down by 2%, it's done. When what I think is, is that if your first draft turns out really sharp and really captivates people, then what you should probably be doing because you're going to have you should be doing more drafts anyway is bumping the goal later to say, so you go, okay, so I'm going to make this first draft 20% better. These are nonsense numbers, right? I don't know what better means in this case, but you're going to say, I'm going to polish it again. I'm going to make it a little bit shorter, a little bit clearer, and a little bit more exciting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it more grabby. Um, So I'm going to make it for argument's sake 20% better. If that puts you past the goal line, 
by 10%, well, then you get to push the goal line up 10% because you hit that. Right. <laughs> um, but there's this notion that in writing and in, particularly in the forms of, I think, game design that are mistaken for being the art of game design, which is to say game design is a separate discipline from writing. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a game is finished when it is locked in prose mm-hmm. necessarily, right? These are they're two different crafts. Yeah. The aptitudes that we're talking about layer on top of each other, but do not have a necessary correlation, right? Right. Like a game can be well designed and poorly written or a poorly designed game can be very well written. Correct. And I think the kinds of people who find themselves attracted to the field, I think, generally have some aptitude at writing a lot of the time, just right. in my experience. Right. Um, I think certainly they have, for our field, the analog RPG mm-hmm. especially. Yeah. But I think the further you get from our field, the more it just becomes that they have a communication aptitude. aptitude yeah. yeah. Yes, agree with that as well. But yeah, so so those things tend to end up working together, especially in projects that have time and resources to go through multiple revisions and editing and stuff like that, right. where the the chances of a game that is conceived, play-tested, and revised, plus the uh, text that has been written, edited, and revised, like, those two things are going to approach better quality together. But... Reading like reading a game book and being like, oh, this is really well written. Sometimes that doesn't actually communicate whether the game itself is going to be a, a valuable experience at the table. Right. And it can actively work against uh, or it can work with neutrally or against the idea of I want to play this game. Yes. A really well written game can deter people from playing it because they think I'm not. I'm not going to be able to play at this level or I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm not going to be able to play the game in the way that this author yeah. suggests like my group's not that serious. We're not going to be able to hit the dramatic beats that this game mm-hmm. is about. That kind of thing. Right. right. This also gets into the question of like your voice, right? Your authorial voice in the text. Like I appreciate the game that's here, but the way that this is written is off-putting to me. Like that's a reaction that people sure. have for things that are like edgier or presented with more, uh, I don't know. Often just temporally things that yeah. are that are either very much of their age or are hearkening to a different era mm-hmm. or what have you. Very much period pieces tend to do that in yeah. my experience. Or like purple prose, right? Like, oh, this is very appropriate for this genre or game. But then some people are like, oh, I'm not even going to finish reading this book because there's so much overblown right. in period quotes right. text. Uh, and and, and the, the, one of the mistakes I think that, that we make as artists and crafts people in this area is the notion that because there are crafts like writing and, and art and so forth involved in this stage of game design, the way you first say it is what makes it art because that's what's true to, to your heart. That's true to your expression. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's not true for any form of art necessarily, mm-hmm. right? The fact that this is the thumbnail I drew in my sketchbook doesn't mean that the, the giant 20-foot canvas that the fine artist paints later is bullshit. Right. So nor is it different when the first way that, that you state a rule in your rule book, in your notebook, is no, but that's always the way I've seen it. Yeah, but mm-hmm. you have to detach to a certain extent the fact that your rule and an expression of the rule are two different things. Mm-hmm. One of the big metrics I, that I learned a long time ago as a freelancer that is important to me as a writer and is not as important to everybody, but has served me well, is always, always, always have two ways of saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Have more than one way of saying a thing. And you will find rare exceptions, obviously, that can't be said that, that there, you know, there, there aren't a whole lot of substitutes for things like I love you in its simplicity. But if you can say a thing in more than one way, that is extremely valuable as a technical writer and as a rules writer, because it enables you to get two or three different routes into the same 
mm-hmm. procedure or idea. Yeah, I think one thing to acknowledge is that people have different learning styles. Yeah, right. absolutely. I will not go into formal pedagogy. But yeah, some of your audience are going to be very analytical. Some of your audience are going to be more um, you know, intuitive. Quotes, intuitive or whatever. And Some are very procedural, for example. Mm. This is a th- one I think is important. And some are experiential, which is that I, I very often don't learn games. I, like I can kind of get how to play it at the beginning, mm-hmm. there's a difference between understanding a game and when it clicks. Yeah. 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 For me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of your player base are cognizant of the fact that they're going to read your book and then they're going to play the game mm-hmm. and that playing it is going to make the book more clear. That's just something I think as a, as a hobbyist, that's something that people are used to doing. So this isn't to say that like, if you can't make your rules perfectly clear to everyone, then it's not worth doing it or something. Right. No, right? I, I agree. But it's more like there are opportunities in your in your text to, as you say, explain something in different ways, both because that gives your audience, people who think differently, different entrees into it. Mm-hmm. And also because it allows you to approach it from different directions yeah. as well. And that can be valuable because then you're you're giving it one more turnover, basically, one more revision. Even if not all of those make it to the final rule book for whatever reason, if you write it, and I think in my, in my experience, it's often the one that is not necessarily aimed at me mm-hmm. that I discover is broader. Because sometimes, you know, having three doors in is just confusing and you only need two, so you cut one. But which one do you cut? You mm-hmm. decide later to cut maybe the one that, that was your initial perfect darling of expression. This is another area where Kill Your Darlings comes from, of course. One of the important things that that is, I think, very empowering for somebody who comes to writing, especially something like game text, which can be essentially correct or incorrect, like technical writing. Mm-hmm. It has a certain nonfiction quality to it, which is to say that's just not how it works. That's mm-hmm. just not how actually how the rule functions. Right? You can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but part of the way of approaching that is if, um, the analogy to acting, which is just as another form of expression, which is to say that actors make choices. There isn't necessarily the right, the one right way to indicate this character in love with that character. That you make choices. Writing is similar in that you always have multiple options of ways to say a thing. Saying it every way you can say it is, is almost never the right play because that's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing, you're making choices. And your first choice is not has no statistical advantage to being the right choice. Mm-hmm. So writing a thing two or three ways so that you can find the way that you're happiest with can be important. Now, taking that idea into the context of your ongoing revision of your game, yeah, you do have to start somewhere. right? And your first draft or your first piece of writing is probably going to be for yourself. I think so. Generally. I yeah. mean, maybe you're writing something to hand off to someone else because they're hyped about your idea and they're going to play test it or something. My my overall point is that you're, you're going to create your text. And then as you iterate on your game, your text is going to change. Uh, and so that's an opportunity, first of all, for you to discover the different ways of saying things over time. Yeah. And also for you to not get so hung up on making sure you get it phrased correctly or get all the nuances down or get it perfect the first time. Mm-hmm. Because not only is the game going to change, which is going to necessitate changes in how you explain the game. Right. Also, part of the iteration process is learning how to express the game. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that completely. To me, I mean, this is where the writing and rewriting process is so analogous to playtesting anyway, and how each one informs the other is so valuable. I've had playtest sessions in which the sole difference, and I ran the same scenario for different players, and the only thing that I did differently was the order in which I explained the rules or the the verbs that I used to do it. For my purposes, I tracked it very tightly at a couple of conventions the past the previous summer. And I discovered one of them was a beautiful test and the, there was a, a poor player for whom it cost some clarity for about 45 minutes, but which I learned, okay, so my my earlier method of teaching it was better. 
because I was like, I have this other idea that I think might be good about the way the skill system works. That I could watch the people tick over as they came to get it, but they were taking longer to get it and they were each getting it individually as opposed to two together. When they get mm-hmm. it in different orders at, at, at vastly different rates, that means that it's taking longer for them to all be on the same page. And it's also more about how they interact with it and less about how the game exposes itself to be understood. Yeah, right? really, yeah really well said. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, exactly, because the game it's not about the game revealing itself and it makes it harder for them to communicate through the game. Uh, but that process was um, super valuable in that, in learning the difference between that, that playtesting, how you teach a game versus whether, even if the game has stayed the same, is still super valuable. Especially for new designers, one of the first documents that I recommend, if you're in playtesting and, and you've got notes and you've been doing the kind of iterative processes for yourself, one of the first things that I recommend writing before you write a, a draft per se, or before you start transcribing from the notebook into a document, is write an example of play that is mm-hmm. not for you. Don't actually, you never have to show it to anybody. That's not the point. Um, but try to, first of all, find out how long it takes for you to get bored writing it. Right. Um, and also, so find out how short you can make it. But also realize what is it when you're doing that example of play, how does that affect the order in which you want to arrange the information that you would be putting into the draft? Because one of the tensions, I think, and it's, and I think it's an artful tension. I think it's a, it's a powerful one, but that we have in drafts and manuscripts in, in especially analog story games and, and RPGs and hobby games is, the order in which you want to share information for clarity and the order in which you want to share information either to convey or to suggest or to emulate the kind of drama or the setting or the genre that you're in are almost always at odds mm-hmm. because you can't reveal at the end that the game was about X or that the winner is Y, mm-hmm. right? There's a certain amount of establishing you need to bring everybody inside first. Yeah, there's – and this is, I think, well documented, right? Yeah. But. There's two related tensions. One is that your artifact is both a technical text, a teaching tool, yeah, uh, and also a reference text. In in other publishing, those two are just two different ways of putting a book together, <laughs> right? Right. And in our in our world, we try to put them into one book. Uh, and the other is that your artifact is, especially if it's a book, is linear, mm-hmm. while your game experience is holistic. While there may be a procedural element to play, or there probably is a procedural element to play, the experience at the table is not one that maps to the linear nature of reading through the book front to back. Right. There's loops in it. So your task as the writer basically is to manage all those tensions to the best of your ability. And also some games work better towards one end of that spectrum or the other. Yeah. Like for example, um, Microscope has a very linear, well, linear is kind of the wrong word, but you literally do set out note cards in a line uh, to create kind of your eras. And then there's a very step-by-step procedural method to how you make the decisions of like, where do we go? What scene do we do? How does that affect the rest of our thing? Where does it fall in this literal timeline? Right, exactly. Which means that in the book, there is an ability to start at, he has it set up so that you can basically read through the procedural text and go through an entire turn, like a board game, essentially. Yeah. And then you look down and you have all your stuff spread out on the table and then you're primed to do it again and maybe depart a little bit from that structure to do yeah. some of the more nuanced things you can do in the game. That's pretty heavy, heavily towards the linear procedural end of, right. of a tabletop game experience. Right. Uh, and then as you get farther and farther away from that, then it can be harder and harder to have the text map to the game experience. Yeah. And, and, and attempts to do so have met with different, there's an example I'm thinking of here, but I've met with wildly different levels of alignment, divergence, and success. 
relative not only to their game experience but as books or as games or as products or what have you. One of the examples that I that I always find fascinating is uh, Decipher's Lord of the Rings RPG is in theory laid out linearly in the sense that it goes from what you already know or need to know about Middle Earth and then kind of the whole book is character creation including at the end now that you have these numbers here's what here's why you would want to have large numbers in the combat skill mm-hmm. to the point that the part of the book when it tells you that you're going to roll 2d6 and add your skill number to it the core mechanic of the game is in the triple digit pages in an, like in a sidebar or an inset little not a sidebar exactly but an inset pull quote kind of passage of text in the skill section mm-hmm. Never before has that come up. Apparently, as near as I can tell, in the first in the first pass of that this book, this is not the One Ring. This is the this is not the One Ring. This is the older the Decipher version. Yeah. In fact, actually, that's that's a great example. It's just even if if you have the opportunity, look at those two rule books well, or the Merp books or whatever at different mm-hmm. ways to convey. And also, the One Ring they recently re released the core book Correct. organized differently. Yeah, because the first version of it, people had a hard time referencing in play. Yeah, the first edition. I have both, and the first edition of that book, which is and they're both beautiful, mm-hmm. but the second one is I think a better game book. The first one is divided into a player's book and a GM's book, but they mm-hmm. interact so much. Right. There's a, there's a lot of crossover between the two. Yeah, yeah. That once in play, it's actually those two books aren't terrible because you can turn to the GM and say, this is a thing that, that's in your book. So you tell us, I pass information to you and then you and then mm-hmm. you lob it back at me. But in actual practice, what it means is that when you're trying to learn it, you're like, you have to have two books open and right. you're there's, there's a learning two sets of pages at once. Right. And there's a learning curve of what do I need to know the GM knows and what do I need to know I know. Exactly. Before yeah. you get to the the part of being able to Of navigate. being able to have that conversation. Right. Another text kind of towards the, that end of the spectrum, I think, uh, is Burning Empires, oh, which no. is also highly procedural. You have very structured scenes. Uh, it uses a version of the Burning Wheel system. There's a lot of moving parts, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the moving parts on your character sheet impact all the different kinds of scenes, and the different kinds of scenes impact the overall arc of whether it's kind of the the, the big frame is basically whether the planet that you're concerned with is going to be invaded and, and taken over by the the Valen alien incursion or not. Mm-hmm. So it's like your character stuff impacts the scenes, impacts the invasion storyline, and there's lots of little ways to, to to make changes, and some of them are obvious and some of them are non-obvious and some of them you're supposed to discover in play and some of some of them you're supposed to kind of know what you're doing and the book again is gorgeous yeah uh yeah full color has all the beautiful comic illustration from the the iron empires comics extensively Mm cross-referenced and has lots of navigation aids but one problem that people have in play is that element of okay we're doing this thing and now i need to make sure that what i want my character to do is going to do the thing that I want it to do at these other levels of play. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of flipping back and forth to look up the thing, and then maybe that's not in the invasion area. Maybe that's in the battle scene area, and then there's mm-hmm. a mini game that you're playing for the firefight, so you have to make sure that you're doing that right. Attaining system mastery is very like cool in that game, right? But yeah, the the text a lot of a lot of players have problems with the bouncing off of the density of the text, even though it is made with an with an eye towards all the referencing available to you. Right. And that's one of those those experiences that I have a great affection for that game. And the way I, I'm about to say this, I think I want to may sound like that is not true. But if you can't tell the difference between that game is organized to specifically make system mastery as rewarding to work for mm-hmm. as opposed to easy to obtain, um, if you can't tell if that's a design intent or not, then it might as well be a design intent because the notion is mm-hmm. that people are going to say, I don't care if you designed it this way on purpose or not. 
this is true. Yeah. So the result is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I bring that up is not because I think that's the case in Burning Empires, because that's on one hand, for example, I love the the kind of ornate filigreed Byzantine aspect of the fact that I make a decision in one of the phases of Burning Empires that says I w- I'm making this decision as a character, but as a player, I'm hoping that what it will do is cause this to happen in a later phase and mm-hmm. a later like of the game. I want to go to the book and be like, so did I pick the right ability? To, like, is that actually going to ricochet the way I want it to? Right, exactly. And I have to go and check to find that out, but I want I may or may not go to look. Or you abandon the idea of like making sure that that's what ha- and you just let the cards fall where they And that was, that was the approach that I took was, yeah. was the question of, you know what? It'll flow the way it flows. I trust that we'll look it up at the right time and that the consequences will be both interesting and meaningful right whether or not they are the ones that i was anticipating Mm -hmm. for me my experience was is the designer in this case uh uh, luke crane is the designer making it intentionally so that i will sometimes make that decision and that 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 choice of do i look it up now or not is as important to gameplay or not Mm -hmm. and the answer is i don't know yeah I, i mean we could ask luke but more interestingly is the fact that from where I was at the time, I couldn't tell the difference between it being real as a design decision or real mm-hmm. as a design consequence. I mean, in that game, it's a little complicated also by the fact that it's upfront antagonistic. Yes. The players are playing against the GM. The GM is kind of playing the, the, the aliens. The aliens yeah. Um, and has stuff that they do and currency that they get to make the invasion happen. You know, in a, in a lot of tabletop role-playing games, the consequences of you making a poor decision are not particularly poor right. in play, right? Either it can get kind of, rat- it's like, oh, you didn't mean for that to happen that way. That's cool. Like, I get it. As the GM, I can kind of wrap it up into another thing and yeah, yeah. And, and we can make sure your intention happens and, and whatever. But in Burning Empires, the relationship is more of a zero-sum relationship where if you make a poor decision, that could potentially give the GM more ability to make you lose the game. Right. And so I think that's where people bounce off of it and and where it's hard to tell what the intention is. So death of the author is the idea that once a text is published, where specifically on the line of written mm-hmm. and published is, once, is, is an open question. Once it's out to the public. When, yeah, when, when it is received by the audience. When yes, an audience, the audience receives yeah. and, and reads the book, the author's intent matters somewhere approaching zero, not necessarily zero, but matters less because they one, they had their chance. And two, right. because of the role of the audience as a reader to both imbue and extract simultaneously from a text is important. I am not necessarily a believer in the ubiquity or supreme authority of death of the author, but I do think it's a valuable analysis and heuristic tool for determining whether or not a, a text is successfully conveying what the author intended. Yeah. What the author intended is not necessarily supreme mm-hmm. either, but in a game book, that is a very different dynamic that some people, including myself, depending on the book, text to text, game to game, but we don't always interpret the same way. We go, well, it's clear that the intent of the rule is this. Well, okay, rules don't have intentions. Designers have intentions. Mm-hmm. A, a sentence is a sentence. If it means something else, it's because somebody imbued it with something else. There is the ability to discover the game intent, yes. right? And and assess whether a rule is in keeping with what everything else seems to be saying or whether it is breaking away from that and what and you have to decide oh is that on purpose or is this a mistake right exactly and that's what i'm getting at is that the the notion of that separation of intent from our goals as players mm-hmm. we when we say a design has intention that's not completely untrue i mean games have agendas i think yeah uh, uh, but the the question is that whatever agenda it is that makes it through to the end product even if it is not the designer's stated, like, actual, I politically agree with this agenda, you let it in there. Mm-hmm. And your name is on the book. Yes. So there's a point to which, not necessarily that, because you can have characters say things that you don't agree with. You can have rules mm-hmm. say things that you don't agree with to get to a larger point or to get what to whatever end. Yeah. But we address intent 
in a game text differently than we address it in, say, a novel or in something that is raw mm -hmm. fiction. If we are halfway through a novel and we're not sure what the intention is and we're not sure how this is going to play out, that could be good. If we're halfway through a game session and we're mm -hmm. suddenly re-questioning everything that we read in the rule book an hour ago and mm -hmm. we're suddenly going, so I can't tell if I hit or missed, that's not good. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when we start resorting to intent, I think the intent is here that the designer wanted you to miss that role, but mm -hmm. we all wanted you to hit. And we're pretty sure that the stats say that you would have hit, but that the rule here, if we read it this way, suggests that you missed. Those are the edge cases and the situations that we're, that we're trying to avoid. And this is what the golden rule was essentially about, was that, hey, if you arrive at one of these situations, mm -hmm. you guys win. Right. If you say, I think this role should have succeeded. Well, then great. Just assume that it succeeded. The game's not going to fly apart. It's not going to fail you. Just keep going with that intention and then re-engage the rules on the other side of that question. Mm -hmm. Other games are very much about design intent. Something like Burning Empires, if you take out, like you say, you, if you don't if follow like, through on something. Let's do everything as a color scene. Like, right. The game will fall apart. It will fall apart and it will not be that game anymore. Right. It will not be representative of the experience. Yeah. Game writer Matt Colville once stated, the rules are not trying to trick you. Mm -hmm. So the further, if you dig deep enough, you will hit, you will hit, you will leave the territory that was planted by the rules. You will eventually dig through the farmland into the, this sure. is me now, D dig through the farmland into the mantle. Mm -hmm into the foundation of the rules. And then at that point, you're lost. You're underground without a torch. You're, you're, you're in somebody else's game now. So if you assume the game isn't trying to trick you, you can reach certain trusting conclusions from reading generously. The reason that we do these passes is to minimize the number of times in which we have to have arguments about the intent versus the expression of a rule. You, mm -hmm. The more you can get those things to align, and there's things like the, the, what the rule is with how you explain it, mm -hmm. the more those align, I think the, the healthier the game is. So when you're putting your text together, when yeah. you're writing some game, maybe it'll be helpful to generate not necessarily a checklist, but like here are the things that here are the masters you are serving, right? When you're writing your right. game text. So I'll start with some and then see if I've missed anything. So you want to express the game in a form that someone, whether yourself at first or someone else, can take it and play it and have it be correct. You want to create the ability for players to understand the goal of the game or the goal of certain rules or the philosophy that you're working in. You want to create the ability for people to learn the game from the text. You want to create the ability for people to find things that they need during play in the text. And you want to transmit the feeling of play. Mm -hmm. Tone and atmosphere. Yeah, tone and atmosphere. Yeah. That's five, isn't that That's enough? That's five. Is there is anything that, else? Isn't that enough to do? I think I think what I was going to single out falls within these five. Mm. Kind of as, a, as an exercise are two different questions that, that are useful to ask. And this is one of those things that, that comes up in, in writing across the board, but I think are especially great for game writing. One is, who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. There's a version of this answer which includes things like, you can get really specific if you wanted to. I'm talking to my cousin, Myrtle. There's, there's an exercise for kind of breaking through design issues of like, I'm writing this game for Will. I, I have this game. It's not quite there yet or whatever. What do I need to do to make sure that I can play it with Will and he's going to love it? Right. And then people who are like Will may also like it. Uh, yeah. And then you can expand from there. And that's a, that's a classic. This is one of those areas where, I, where I, I talk about the fact that writing and narrative design, playwriting, all these script writing, these sorts of things are actually not that different from design in terms of their early philosophies. Writing becomes different from design as you get deeper into it in the same way that 
like furniture design becomes different from UX design, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have certain things in common at the front end, at yeah. the beginning, and then the f more diamonds you get through, the more the less they resemble <laughs> right. one also, another. Also, yeah, <laughs> what you end up uh, asking people to give you money for may be different. <laughs> and when, yeah, and when, but at yeah. the beginning, they're very similar. Yeah. yeah. So as one is who are you talking to, and the other one is why are you telling me this? Mm -hmm. My opinion is that your reader does not necessarily need to know the answer to why are you telling me this at the time they are being told. Mm -hmm. But they do need the answer, and you need the answer when you have their attention. Mm -hmm. You don't have to give it to them yet. That's that's the nature of suspense. So those those five things, and I think we're not limiting it to five. Those are just kind of. I'm just trying not to overwhelm anybody. Off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But those th five things are all kind of answers to why are you telling me this, right? Like why are you telling me this? Because it's a rule I need to know to make the game happen. Um, because it's something that I'm going to have to look up later. Because it's something about the tone or atmosphere of the game right. that is not transmitted through the other things. Right. But that is important for the play experience. Mm -hmm. It can be. It can be transmitted through the other things as well. Right. right. Redundancy is a thing. Right. Yeah. And that was the other point I was going to make is that these things are kind of concentric circles that overlap each other and devolve onto each other. When you're writing a draft, you're kind of prioritizing which one is important for you at that time. Right. Right. Generally, one of the first things, like your inner core, is like transmitting the game experience through words, mm -hmm. the rules, how they work. Right. And then the next circle may be teaching the game. So what do you need to add so that people can pick it up, learn the game, and then play? Mm -hmm. But then if something in the learning the game part fails, there's still the playing the game part, right? That's still there. And then maybe the next layer is referencing. And then maybe the next layer is tone and atmosphere. And then the next layer is whatever the last one was that I said. When you are addressing someone, where on kind of, and it's yet another spectrum, of the uh, the spectrum from audience to collaborator are you addressing mm -hmm. them on? Mm -hmm. And that works for both those two questions, and I think it works for all five of those other categories. So the thing is, the learner, it, that pillar, is about transitioning somebody from audience to collaborator, right? Because everybody starts off as in, the, in the audience for an RPG, which is like, I don't even know what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. I don't know how this works. And then you want to get them to the point where the, where the reader can collaborate with you in understanding and in acting and playing the game without you there mm. anywhere in the world. The tension between audience and collaborator in the mechanics and the game rules versus the fiction is a real useful and powerful tension in the finished book. Ignore that tension in your first draft. Write for the mechanics, mm. write for the stuff that we've been talking about, write for why are you telling me this? Because if you're trying to write a setting book with that that is not that is kind of system agnostic, well then just take all take the game out of it. Yeah. Putting a game in that doesn't work, that mm -hmm. doesn't let people in, or just make them two separate documents at first, mm -hmm. whatever it is, yeah. and weave them together as you start to get comfortable with how the tone of your and, game interacts with the atmosphere, interacts yeah. with the mechanics. And as you discover kind of what parts of your game enable that transmission from right. audience or or kind of outsider into fully empowered part participant yeah yeah that's really interesting though i'm turning that over in my head i'm going to restate it yeah and please. tell me if if this is is what you're talking about in a lot of ways your early work assumes knowledge right like you're writing for you and you assume that you can fill in all the blanks of things that you write and then your next drafts are going to be maybe for people that you've talked to about the game that you've play tested the game with that you've had some kind of interaction with or that you play other games like this with so you know this kind of person mm -hmm. is going to be able to fill in some of the assumptions or whatever. So you're kind of starting from a point of the of fully empowered insider. Mm -hmm. And then as you develop the game, you're expanding, you're using the text to expand it so that people who are less um, knowledgeable can get into it. Right. Ideally, I think, you know, you want to get to a point where anyone can pick it up and figure it out. 
right right go go from zero to fully fully empowered uh some games stop short of that either intentionally or just due to other design decisions made and other pressures on your time and ability to finish things right i'm thinking like a lot of apocalypse world hacks that are like here's apocalypse world but for star trek right. so it uses all of this stuff from apocalypse world and here's the playbooks and here's the move sheet that's for people who already know Apocalypse World. You're not going to hand the playbooks and move sheet to someone who's never played a role-playing game. I mean, maybe you will, but right. the point but, is, is relying on a lot of assumptions that right. aren't going to be in those materials. You might be leaning on the on the Star Trek property, the fact that somebody right. else has done the work for you in Star Trek that people know what Star Trek is, or people have done mm-hmm. the work for you in understanding that they know what Apocalypse World is, whatever, <laughs> and that they will all reach a unity in the mm-hmm. middle. And it's not impossible to have a text in the end in which you say, and now for this last yeah. step, leap and I'll catch you. Mm-hmm. But that's bold and... You had to get there somehow, so build the bridge first and then decide if you don't need it. Uh, What are some techniques for getting your game idea into text for that kind of first stage, whether it's just for you or whether it's before you've kind of gone through this process of, of finding out you know, how detailed do things need to be? Who am I talking to exactly? Mm-hmm. When you're sitting down and like, I'm going to make my draft because I'm going to a convention this weekend and right. I'm going to be running the game. This is the the tips and tricks section <laughs> for uh, for writing games. But yeah, do you have any general techniques or, or things that you have found to be useful I do. for making that happen? One is that for all that you can avoid outlining in fiction, outlining is supremely important. I think in this stage of writing for games, because although this is an interesting challenge, so maybe one of you will will make this happen and it's never happened before. I've never heard this sentence before said out loud for real. I can't wait to find out how this rule turns out. (laughs) Right. They're not the same thing as a story. So when you can have the emergent reaction of rules, that's interesting. and That's great. and That's an essential part of the story game. But you need to have a sense as to how all the rules work or else you haven't actually designed a thing yet, or you're still in the midst of it, which is great because you can start writing early. But the point is, is that if you're going to start teaching to somebody else, you want to know how the rule turns out, right? So it's like, right. and then and then you hit, and then what happens? Well, then you deal damage. Okay, how do I do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I'll and figure this, that out at the table. Right. <laughs> well, and this this might be the difference, right, between doing like a playstorm, yeah. like we've talked yeah. about in the past, and kind oh, of absolutely. trying to pull it together into a draft. Yeah, exactly. So when you're getting to the draft stage, um, remembering that an outline can always be molten. It's not like your term paper that you're beholden to it. You turn in the outline, and then you turn in the paper or something. So outlining is great, especially actually when you can outline for yourself. How, how detailed do you generally get with your outlines? I try to keep an outline that I'm going, for example, that I take to a convention or do a play test to a page so that I can just eyeball it. Mm-hmm. And I try to keep it to essentially three layers deep, which is just to say capital, for me, capital letters, numbers, lowercase letters. Mm-hmm. Three levels of indentation. Three levels of indentation. Yeah. And very often it's only two. Or I guess two. Yeah. 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 And very often to me, it's still only two items. It's usually just header subsection. Mm-hmm. But also what I do is I try to predict in advance when I can. I try to write that stuff almost as headers. I outline for brevity, but not necessarily for maximum brevity. These things might be the thing that turns into section headings in your final text. Yeah. Well, and that part of that or is- Or chapter and section yeah, or something ex- like that. Exactly. And part of that is, is that the way I tend to write rules text is that I go through and I take the outline and I put in passages or I put in stuff like, I'll go, I do a pass on a whole chapter first, and then I go back and write it. Versus I go through the headers and I say, okay, so this leads to this, leads to this. And under each of these, I need the following things. Mm-hmm. I do that, and then I go back and I start writing the prose. And that's essentially outlining. But when I do it, understanding kind of how it's, it relates to the book and that I can then later say, oh, you know what? Because I know now that when I write this sec- – and I might not write them in order when I do the prose because I may have realized that I've cracked the right way to talk about the damage rules, but I haven't covered to hit rules yet. Mm-hmm. I know how they work, but I haven't explained them yet. I can go through and say, ah, writing the damage rules taught me 
that I need to foreshadow essentially. I need yeah. to I need to refer forward to this thing. Instead of having four paragraphs of to hit and one paragraph of damage, I could do two and two. But so that kind of moving text around is super valuable. So I say that at this stage, tips and tricks is don't be afraid to move text around later. Don't write as if you're cementing anything. Mm-hmm. The one thing about headers that's super valuable is there's a tradition in game writing of having headers tell you what the text underneath it is going to do. Mm-hmm. And what Jeff Tidball has been suggesting lately and that it's uh, what I've done in in a couple of things that I've gotten in draft form right now or in layout right now are the header tells you not the thesis of the thing underneath it, but the conclusion, mm. which is super valuable for reference later because you often then just you have to find the header and go, oh, right, that's now I remember I read that passage. This is what it was telling me. Yeah. So rather than it saying turn order, what you have the section, what might be every player gets a turn and then under that is, right? And so, sure, okay. it, and then under that, it, mm. it goes wider on it or um, every player gets one stunt and then under that, you talk about how, how why that how, is, how, how, how that works out. Of yeah. your three options, you pick one or whatever. Right. It is. Yeah. And so now instead huh. of going through and saying, okay, here's a section on stunts, let me read these three paragraphs really quick. Mm-hmm. At worst, it's a mnemonic and at best, it is literally the rule <laughs> and it works out really, really nicely. Plus, it's often stronger, a stronger statement. It's more assertive writing. Yeah. Uh, so, when you're drafting your outline, basically figuring out what your outline is going to be, what's kind of the driver for what goes where, for like the order of the outline? Well, and it changes considerably from design to design, right? right? So yeah, sometimes sure. it's a matter of doing it in procedure, like I do it in turn order, mm-hmm. or I do it as if it's an outline for the book, and then I find out how the book changes to fit the rules. But the big thing I do is I ask myself questions in the outline. Mm. Because uh, by addressing myself, when it keeps me addressing me, which is very valuable to making it a document that I'm not afraid to work on, because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it's for somebody else, doesn't seem like it's going to be seen by somebody, but is by asking myself questions in it, it means that I have to make a decision instead of intuitively or instinctively making a mistake when I put an answer too far from a question or too close to a question or whatever. So if you want it to be, will you hit this monster? Here's how we find out. You want to make people have to go flipping back and forth to the book to find out how the, to hit rules work right. or, or how the, the persuasion rules work or what have you. So by phrasing it as questions, it also reminds me that choices are in play. Um how you answer a question reminds me all the time that it's not just what I say, but how I choose to say it. And that's also opportunities for you to start working out things like tone and voice. Exactly. And uh, diction and all yeah. all those writerly things. What about you, Nathan? How do you approach the early material of writing like this? Sometimes I do an outline similar to what we've been discussing. Sometimes I will start with whatever the thing is that's kind of like hooking me into the game, right? Like getting back to initial inspiration, stuff like that. Mm. If the inspiration for the game is an exploration of like how characters change, then the first part of what I write is generally going to be like, here's some some baseline assumptions about how characters work so I can explore these these ideas I have about character change. And then as I go through that process, I'm like, oh, well, I need to know this and this and this in order to complete this mechanical idea. And that's what turns into the early draft. I basically just start writing sentences and uh, kind of put a little like dash and then give myself questions. Do characters have three traits? Question mark. Yeah. Um, And then I fill in the next thing and then like, are they going to have to work together? Question mark. Like that kind of thing. Uh, And then I'll go back and try to answer as many of those questions as I can. Yeah. And that turns into two or three pages of here are broad scale mechanics that are the core of whatever this game is. And then I'll turn that into an actual outline. Like that line actually comes after that for me a lot of the time. Because the outline is where I start to see like, what else do I need to have in here? A lot of the time that early draft will be a bunch of initial ideas. And then I'll just put a line of dashes and then I will write kind of the same stuff, but in a more procedural form. So I have all the material that I've already written, so I don't forget anything. 
But instead of rewriting it or having it in a different document, it's just right. up at the top of my Google Doc or whatever. And then I rewrite it into a procedural form. And then I'll go to like an outline of yeah, what else, yeah. what is that procedure leading into or coming out of. Interesting. That's very close to what I do with Evernote in my notebooks, my paper notebooks now, except that I break up the documents because one's in Evernote and one is like mm. in Word or whatever. But that's interesting. I'm fascinated yet to kind of think about, I mean, I have them generally all open at the same time so I can see them. Mm. But even just that slightly less amount of drag of having it right there at the top of the document. One technique that I've started doing is I just highlight like stuff that I've recapped or rewritten. The original text, I'll put like a yellow highlight over it. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, okay, I address that. I address that. And then the stuff that isn't highlighted, I'm like, oh, I haven't done that yet. And then all of that turns into eventually just deleting all the old stuff and taking the, the rewritten stuff and then using that as the core for like whatever the PDF playtest document is going to be cool. or something like that. So for me, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, it's less about constructing a, a framework. It's more of a target based kind of thing like here's the target i'm trying to get yeah and then from the target i start spreading outwards in kind of any direction i need to to make it happen and then later i have the big lumpy mass of material and then i go to structure because for mm -hmm. me the structure is more about turning it into something other people can interact with and it's less about making it possible for me to do it there's an overlapping metaphor here i like that this is the second time while you've explained your process that it's occurred to me, which is that first you build the city, then you build the roads to the city, <laughs> right? Which is that first you decide, I'm going to make this great place for people to come and play. Mm -hmm. You don't build the roads first to the people. You don't want somebody actually coming down the road and saying, what is this hole in the ground? Oh, it's going to be a city someday, right? Right. First you build the cities and then you build the roads. That if they come down the road to your city, more and more people can show up and then they show up. There's a city ready for them, a playground there or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that target based. That's neat. Mm -hmm. In broader tips and tricks, in addition to outlining, one of the big things that I do is I'm a big believer in, you wouldn't know it from a lot of my pros, I love the power of brevity. So the first thing that I would say to do when you're before your convention weekend, probably even before your outline, but is to see how briefly you can tell your game to yourself, mm -hmm. including what do you leave out. The exercise of how briefly can you tell me what your game does or is or how I will play it or how I will feel about playing it. Like what battles do you choose to fight and which battles do you choose to, to push off to? I'll answer that question if somebody asked it at the table. Yeah. And I, it's not cell text necessarily, but okay. oftentimes I find that I mine this document later for cell text. Because I don't really enjoy the act of writing very much. A lot of my writing, my, my actual game documents, start out as that very mm. spare kind of thing, even if it's not an outline, even if it is in prose and paragraphs and, and whatnot. And then I find that I, over the course of development, I expand it because things come up that do need to be explained yeah. that I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be sitting at every table able to, to fill in the details. Yeah. And that's an interesting process because it starts out compact and then expands and then it contracts again because you, you need to, you need to edit, right? You need to, whether you edit yourself or you hire an editor or you go through a process of winnowing or, or whatever it is, pretty much every piece of writing is going to be better for taking something away. I think it's like when you're putting together your outfit and you put on all your accessories and then you want to take one thing off. I, it, that's been my experience with writing as well, both academic writing um, and also for games where you have your whole thing and then you go through and you're like, oh, I can probably take out this sentence, take out this paragraph. These two things combine into one section. And sure, it's only 200 words shorter, but now it's that much punchier and easier to read and understandable. Right. right. In some games, there is more clarity in having a lot of specific jargon 
that refers to each other. Yeah. And in some games, that takes clarity away and you want to use like plain language. It makes it easier to your approach. So I really think it is project dependent. Aesthetically, I tend to use more natural language mm-hmm. and less game-specific jargon. And when there is game-specific stuff, I try to keep it to mechanics in the game that are not only are specific to that game, but are maybe not in other games. Because stuff like, I'm not going to capitalize like the word roll, make a two-hit roll, and it's like capital yeah. two, capital H, capital R. In our field, that that's natural language to me. Right. People know what that means. I mean, the details are in the game, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's not like, let me look up in the in the glossary what two-hit roll means. The, the, my understanding of that is that even if you capitalize it, what you're, your meaning of it is the same colloquial meaning as everything else. So right. you've created a second meaning of it that is identical to the first meaning, right. capital and lowercase. So you've added no value to it. Exactly. And um, then when you're like scanning a page, because that's the right, that's the benefit of capitalizing game terms, right? When you scan a page, you're like, oh, this refers to a mechanic. If you're capitalizing things that, that makes it harder to find the other things that you actually need to know, right. then that's taking clarity away from your yeah. writing. In oh, and adding intimidation. Right. But it adds the element of, oh, God, I, never, I didn't even see a part on, on capital, two, capital T, capital H, two hit rolls. I have to look that up. Right. Yeah. The example to me is um, that I always go back to is the word skill. Because sometimes I want to be able to use the word skill in text mm-hmm. without referring to the skills in the game mm-hmm. or creating the question, why isn't there a drive skill or whatever it is. Yeah. And so I go, oh, do I capitalize skills or not? Yeah. And, I, and game by game, I make different decisions. It depends decisions. on the game. But uh, this, is a, yeah. this is a stage where I start really thinking about that again mm-hmm. and not again answering it necessarily, but where I make that list and I go, boy, am I going to capitalize skills or not? And, and it's part of the outlining essentially, but it doesn't actually go in the outline, but it's mm-hmm. kind of in the same phase for me. I mean, in terms of functional, yeah. like functionalism, and especially when the audience is you right. doing something that you know you're going to change later, but makes it easy for you to keep parsing, that's not the wrong decision to make. No, no, no. Right? Uh, like in your outline or in your draft, if every single thing that refers to rolling dice is bolded, even though you know in the actual thing, like only like three of these things are going to be bolded, you can change it later. Uh, and if it makes it easier for you to parse at the table when people are interacting with the game and when mm-hmm. they're just doing in-person monologuing or whatever, that's great. That's that's part of the process. This is, uh, this is one of those things that's very nuts and bolts and I think mm-hmm. could be, again, helpful and or intimidating. Let's say I make everything, all monster names go in italics and all spells go in bold, mm-hmm. right? All technology will be small caps. Mm-hmm. And I do that in my outlining in my early stage of my draft. And I'm thinking, you know, because I don't know how much of this text will make it to the final draft or whatever's going on. I'm just kind of working it out. If I put stuff in there that I'm going to have to change by hand, mm-hmm. instance by instance, versus style by style or with find and replace or what have you, there is a learning curve to certain designers now, which is that I don't know all the tricks for grep. Mm-hmm. I don't know find yeah. and replace. I don't mm-hmm. know all the tricks for grep. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you out there. I know some. I know a handful that I've used a lot. Mm-hmm. But – um. I don't know all the instances that I'm going to need for find and replace. I don't know how I'm going to change these styles. Right. Do, is it enough? Am I just hitting bold to, to bold the thing? Mm. And I say, well, I decided I changed my mind. I don't want skills to be in bold anymore. Well, now you got to go through and unbold all that stuff by hand. Yeah. Or whatever. How much do you worry about the the forward repercussions and the, the descendants of your early design layout decisions? For me, when I'm doing my own work, I can customize it to my layout workflow. So... I do that, which for me kind of depends on the length of the text, too. If it's relatively short, I don't worry about it because doing it manually isn't that big of a deal. If it's like 30 pages or something like that. Sure. But for something 
like worldwide wrestling. What I do is when I compose the text in prose, I put tags around things. They're like HTML tags, but they're not literally HTML. They're just whatever makes sense to me. So yeah. italic is bracket I, bracket uh, yeah. heading is bracket H1, bracket H2, whatever it is. Can I ask where, where you picked that up when you started doing that? Because I know there, um, are, there are programs for which that was the de facto way of doing it. Yeah. When I started as a freelancer, that was how you turned in manuscripts. Mm-hmm. I started doing it intentionally in the last 18 months, maybe. Oh, wow. But I picked up that particular way of doing it just from also having a little bit of experience with HTML and, and CSS and stuff. So that's just where my brain goes. Interesting. Um, but in terms of the tools for turning those tags into styles, like they can be anything. Yeah. So as long as they're easy to search, basically. So they could be square brackets, they could be stars and slashes, they could be, I mean, ideally there's something that you're not going to have anywhere where it's not indicating a tag. Right. Is the main thing. Right. You're making a decision in part when you use your bracket tags or your, or your angle bracket tags. Right. That your game will not include, probably not include brackets as part of its lingo and structure and common ta- common language. Right. So, and, yeah. and mine generally do not. Yeah, so. my, mine too. Yeah. So when I take that into InDesign, I can do grep to auto style everything right. to whatever those styles are. It's interesting. That's like the opposite of, of the transition that I made in the last couple of years, which is one of the reasons I stopped using Scrivener was because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually style text correctly for mm-hmm. import into InDesign. Yeah. So I'm back to Word. Since, since, since I had last used Word, the most recent updates to Word are glorious. Mm-hmm. There still are issues, obviously. But uh, so I have you know, book title as a, yeah, so as a style. Word styles. I have, yeah, I have yeah. word styles for paragraph and, and character. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, I didn't use character styles at all because it just, they were unreliable mm-hmm. in their integration, the way that they would communicate between programs. Yeah. But now both Word and InDesign talk to each other so well, mm-hmm. pages in InDesign still do not, which bothers me. Yeah. But um, that I can use styles for things like, like what used to just be would all just be the emphasis style. Mm-hmm. Well, now I have three emphasis styles because I might decide later that I want to change book titles or fictional book titles to right, a different to thing. Else. Yeah, yeah. And so I style them all during the writing. Mm-hmm. I used to have to leave it to layout artists or make that decision when I put on my layout artist hat. Yeah. Now I can make those decisions one way as the writer and then question mm-hmm. them later and not have to go through and highlight Do it shit. all manually. Yeah. 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 I mean, for me, A, I don't use an actual release of Word. I use a, a open source sure. version. So there's that. Also, because the way that I do client work, not everyone is comfortable using styles. Sure. So instead of trying to force clients to submit manuscripts with styles correctly, I do the bracket thing and people people do that. And then it fits into my workflow. Nice. So it's just a, yeah, it's just a preference thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess all of which is to say that you can, if, if you have the skills and foreknowledge of I'm also going to be the person putting this together in layout or whatever, like you can definitely save yourself some time and make some upfront decisions about things like tagging and styles that don't lock you down to what that's going to look like in the end. Right. But do make it much easier for you to change like, oh, I'm not going to capitalize all these. No, I'm not going to bold all these. Right. And then you don't have the friction of like, oh, now I have to manually go through and change things because that's a real thing. Oh, yeah. In changing, in, in doing rewriting, like, oh, and now I decided to capitalize all of the weapons now I have to go through and find all the weapons that I wrote down and make sure they're capitalized. And it's not that going back through the manuscript obviously is a bad idea. No, it's, it's just that it does create another opportunity yeah. to miss one. Yeah, and it's also not fun, yeah. at least for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the the question there, the the kind of metric to think about is that if adding the steps for foreknowledge at the beginning is making it harder for you to write, then screw it. Keep writing. Yeah, do whatever is you makes can do that it later. Yeah, yeah. Lower, lower the incline for yourself, especially in the early days, because. You may change your mind in two months anyway or whatever, but if that if that helps you get writing because it helps you see the text the way you imagine that it will look near the end or any of that kind of stuff, it's almost never too early to make those decisions if you know how you're going to be interacting with them later. Yeah. 
It's another thing that's that's on the arc of your game design career, right? Like earlier in the process, probably more important just like, you know, get a cogent piece of writing together. Yeah. Later in the process, once you kind of have a, a handle on what your end-to-end process is, then you can make the decisions up front that save you time right. throughout the, the end of the process. And that's just a, a part of the learn, learning curve. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving stars or a review at your favorite podcast dispensary. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...